They say you have three names. The one you inherit from your family. The one your parents gave you. And the one you make for yourself. So create the brand of you. Find the job you've always dreamed of and make it yours by going to Irish Jobs, Ireland's online recruitment platform. Take control of your career. Visit irishjobs.ie and move up to the next level you. Irish Jobs. Make a name for yourself. Time now for Rocky Jordan. It was a hot afternoon in Cairo when she walked into the cafe tambourine. She was beautiful, but there was something else. Something so wrong with the picture that I couldn't take my eyes off her. It wasn't the blonde hair piled on top of her head or the dress that clung to her like a football player covering a fumble, nor even the set expression on her face. But when she stopped in front of me, I knew what it was. She was all woman, but not an inch under six feet four. Again, we bring you a story of adventure with a man named Rocky Jordan, proprietor of the Cafe Tambourine in Cairo. Cairo, gateway to the ancient East, where modern life unfolds against the backdrop of antiquity. Tonight's story, The Bartered Bridegroom. We've had a pretty fair assortment of customers in the tambourine. Almost anything on feet. But when I looked up into that icy-faced six-feet-four of blonde female, I knew we had our first Amazon. You're ready, Mr. Jordan? Uh, ready? You're wasting time, Jordan. I didn't catch the name. Lily Carroll. You're being rude. The face is familiar. Maybe we met in Istanbul. No, Jordan. Alexandria, maybe? The arrangements are made. You're stalling. <laughs> Look, uh... Suppose we take it from the top of the page, Miss Carroll. Naturally, you're interested in the money. This, too, has been taken care of. Now about the ceremony. Ceremony? The wedding. Be there in an hour. Oh, sure, I'll be... Until I get my divorce, I don't handle divorce cases. It won't be necessary for you to... I have all the required evidence. I merely want you to see to it that I'm divorced by a judge, not by a bullet. Mr. Potter stared at me for a moment out of very cold blue eyes, turned and left. His tailoring impressed me from the rear as strongly as it had from the front. He shut the door quietly behind him, proving he was a gentleman. I counted the bills that had been in the white envelope all over again. This proved I wasn't a gentleman. It still came out to $500, so I went to work. I picked up the potters at their townhouse. Of course, I didn't know if they had a country house, but they certainly had a townhouse. All they needed was Grant to make it a dead ringer for Grant's tomb. They went downtown, and I followed them. They parked, and I parked. They walked into the Parakeet nightclub, and I walked into the Parakeet nightclub. Good evening, mister. I take your hat, no? No, no, you couldn't put my hat in with those others you've got there. Why not, monsieur? They'd probably walk out and protest. <laughs> monsieur is a witch, no? Monsieur is no witch at all. 
Not only that, but he remembered you from Brooklyn. Oh, Mr. McBedrest, is... Sorry, Craig. Hi, Marge. Not Marge, Mr. Craig. I'm Cece. The management decided they needed a French hat check girl. I guess they kind of figured it was sexier or something. I'm sure the hat's appreciated. So I'm Cece. You make a very nice Cece. That couple that just walked in, the Potters, do you know anything about them? Oh, no, not a thing, Mr. Craig. Of course, Mrs. Potter's name used to be Gloria Blair. Her father used to be a millionaire. Only recently, he wasn't a millionaire anymore. She's 27 years old. Her hair used to be three shades lighter. And she's got a small mole under her left shoulder blade. She hates pajamas. Gosh, I wish I could help you out. But you don't know a thing about her. That's right, Mr. Craig. What was she doing before she married Potter? For fun or to eat? To eat. She didn't eat much. Oh. But for a while, she tried to make a bucket of singer here. Potter struck me as being a very cautious cookie. How did she manage to land him? <laughs> to laugh. <laughs> Cece, I'd like to laugh, too. Oh. Well, I think they incorporated her. They incorporated her? Cece, how would you like to be strangled? Gosh, I don't know. I guess the fellows I've been out with were too bashful to try. Who incorporated Gloria Potter? A Mr. Jones, mostly. You see, Mr. Potter was always scared some girl would marry him for his money. <laughs> he was silly. What else does a girl get married for? Well, I'll check, and if I find out, I'll let you know. But seeing Mr. Potter was so prejudiced, this Mr. Jones gave Gloria a lot of money so she could pretend she was still rich. And she did, and Mr. Potter married her, and it was very romantic. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, where could I find this Mr. Jones if I wanted to? You want him to incorporate you, too? No, I'm not planning on getting married. Well, Mr. Jones, his first name is Oswald, but he doesn't like people to know that. And he's got a very beautiful apartment over at the Barham Towers. It's kind of a hunting lodge. It's on the 11th floor. A hunting lodge on the 11th floor? What does he hunt? <laughs> well, never mind. I'd better get back to work. Uh, so long, Cece. Gosh, I wish there was something I could have told you about going to It has been an interesting interlude along the sidelines, but it was time for me to get back into the main arena. The parakeet was a very handsome and expensive nightclub filled with handsome and expensive people. I waved off a head waiter and stabbed myself a table a couple of feet from the one occupied by the Potters. I had my first chance to take a good look at Mrs. Potter. I took a very good look. Mrs. Potter was worth it. At which point, somebody may have noticed my staring and decided to make it hard. They put the lights out. I made a dash for Potter's table and Potter. I got a hold of him. He objected, but I didn't treat him gently. <coughs> Maybe the shot hadn't been fired at Potter. It would have been a coincidence. I felt just as happy I hadn't tried to prove it. The lights went on after a while. How do you do, Mrs. Potter? Who are you? What have you done to my husband? My name is Barry Craig, and I think I've knocked him out. What on earth? I had to get him out of that chair. Sir. Mrs. Potter, who do you think those shots were fired at? About this time, we got lots of company. Head waiters, managers, newspaper columnists, and stuff. We should have got the police, too, but the kind of people who go to nightclubs like Parakeet can afford not to be public. The police were kept out. Potter began to revive after a while, and the incident could be considered closed. But before it was quite closed, Mrs. Potter and I had a snatch of dialogue. You must have been expecting an attempt on my husband's life. I had it in mind. Are you going to talk to the police? I've got no objection to talking to the police. As a matter of fact, some of my best friends are policemen. I wish you wouldn't. 
I don't suppose there'd be any use. No, in... no, but people try, though. Mr. Craig, what are you doing later tonight? I might try sleeping. Before you do that, and, and before you talk to the police, please come to my house. Any particular reason? My husband doesn't understand you. <laughs> that isn't a very particular reason, is it? What he doesn't understand has nothing to do with romance, Mr. Craig. Oh, then it's a switch. What does it have to do with? Murder. At which point, Mr. Potter regained what was consciousness for him, and they left. I tried to leave right after them, but ran into a little trouble. The shooting had leaked somehow, and a few cops dropped in. They were too late for the Potters, but they were in time to hold me up. Not very long, but sometimes a half hour can be much too long. I was a little worried by the time I got to the Potters' front door. I didn't want Gloria to think that I turned her invitation down. Not so much because I was afraid of hurting her feelings, but uh, because I had a notion that things were happening too fast. All right. It was a solid door. It had been built well. Nothing happened except I got a bruised shoulder out of the effort. Who? Mary Craig, Mr. Potter. Excuse me. You came. I came, only I think I was a little late, wasn't I? Those shots. They came from my husband's study. Let's go ask your husband what he thought of them. All right. Anyone else in the house except your husband and you? Not so far as I know. The servants are away. That makes it convenient. Makes what convenient? Cuts the list of suspects down. Suspect? Yeah, in case those shots were aimed any better than the ones back at the club. That's the door. Your husband's room? Yes. I used a handkerchief on the doorknob. If you don't mind, I wouldn't want to disturb any fingerprints either if they happened to be yours. Well, you... Well, it's open, but... But it was closed when you tried it? It was. At least that's the way you're telling it. Let's go in. Mm. Yeah, Mr. Potter. Mm. If you're trying to be delicate about whether or not he's alive, you don't have to be. He can't hear you. Then he is dead. Dead as they come, and when they're murdered, they come very dead. Gloria Potter went to a room in order to breathe, exult. I didn't bother speculating. I phoned the police and waited until they came. Barry? Yes, Lieutenant Rogers. Stop being so formal. I got the report of the business back at the Parakeet Club. I imagined you would. You were there too, Barry. Uh-huh. And then you show up here. It looks suspicious as anything. I don't kid me just because I went to college, Barry. It wasn't my fault. I was an underprivileged child. My parents had money. We won't hold it against you. Maybe even as the years go by, you'll be able to overcome your handicap. I try. Barry, why were you here? Mrs. Potter asked me to stop in. That's what you said the first time I asked you. It must be a coincidence. The captain won't like it. Why not? This month he doesn't believe in coincidences. I think it has something to do with the stars. Barry, you had a date here to do what? Mrs. Potter asked me to stop in. She said she wanted to explain something to me about how her husband didn't understand her. That's not going to sound so good in the murder trial. Doesn't sound so good even here. Have you talked to her? The doctor tells me she's suffering from shock. Translated, it means she doesn't want to answer any questions just now. I wonder why. Maybe she doesn't know the answer. Are you going to book her, Tran? I don't know. Nine times out of ten, I would. What makes this the tenth time? I'm not sure. Not enough facts for one thing. For another, nobody's mentioned a motive to me yet. You got a motive handy? I looked hastily through my pockets but couldn't find a motive. Lieutenant Rogers watched me with a highly unimpressed eye. I shrugged my shoulders and asked the lieutenant if I could leave. 
He wasn't happy about it, but I left anyway. Sure, I might have supplied him with some information about a motive, but it wasn't entirely my own secret. I thought maybe I ought to get Mr. Jones' permission, Mr. Oswald Jones. It wasn't hard to find the Barn Towers. The 11th floor had an elevator running to it, which I used. It may have been a hunting lodge, but it had an ordinary door out in front of it. I hoped Oswald wasn't out hunting. Yes? The name is Barry Craig. You're Mr. Jones? I am. Mind if I come in? That would depend on the nature of your business, Mr. Craig. I'm a confidential investigator. Indeed. That, however, is your occupation. Your errand? Gloria Potter. I dislike seeming finicky, but that again is merely a name, not a description of the reason that brings you here. I seem to be having a little logical difficulty with you, Mr. Jones, but uh, Mr. Potter is having difficulty of another sort. Mr. Potter? And his difficulty is what? His difficulty was staying alive. He doesn't have any more difficulty now. Meaning he's dead? He's dead. It is kind of you to bring me the information. You brought it, and... And I'm coming in. You, uh, you have, of course, the advantage of youth and perhaps of strength. I resent your intrusion, however. While you're resenting it, you must shut the door. Very well. You must be a very happy man, Mr. Jones. Indeed. Sure. An investment has paid off tonight. Perhaps I misunderstand you. I thought you were a confidential investigator, not a broker's agent. The investment I'm talking about doesn't have very much to do with the stock market, I don't think. It has to do with Gloria Potter. A lovely lady, but hardly... Hardly a dividend? She's returning dividends, though, or she will shortly be in a position to, anyway. You had better make yourself clearer. I'll try. You stake Gloria Potter so she could marry a millionaire who was afraid that women were after him for his money. I may have lent Mrs. Potter some money in the days before she was married. At what interest? Look here, young man. I think we have done enough fencing. I've already told you I did lend Gloria Potter some money. I expect to have it returned. Whether with interest or not is no concern of yours. It might be a concern of the police. The police? Where do they come in? You do it very well. If it's an act, that is. Mr. Potter not only died, he was murdered. How distressing. You should practice expressions of distress. You didn't do that very convincingly. I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything. You lent Gloria money. You expected a return on it. That would have been fine. She did succeed in getting Potter to marry her, but Miss Jones, Potter was preparing to divorce her. Such, alas, are the vicissitudes of matrimony. One can never be certain, can one? You can spare me the philosophical remarks about matrimony. If Potter had lived long enough to divorce Gloria, you'd never have got your investment back or the profit on it. Then I suppose I must be mildly pleased that Mr. Potter did not succeed in divorcing Gloria. Sure, you must be pleased. What I'm curious about is, uh, how much of an effort did you make to guarantee your investment? Are you implying that I had anything to do with Mr. Potter's unhappy deceit? I'm asking you if you had anything to do with murdering him. That seems to me rather naive, Mr. Craig. Assuming that I may have had a hand in his untimely taking off, would I be likely to tell you about it? I don't know. There are no witnesses present. You could tell me in perfect safety. Perhaps. But why on earth should I? It might satisfy your ego. Mr. Craig, I am no longer a young man. I was never a handsome one. I perforce learned a great many years ago to abjure ego satisfaction, at least of the more obvious sort. 
I think the hour is late. I think your visit here is impertinent. Good night. Okay. Good night. Mr. Craig, that is not the direction of the front door. I know it is. Hey, let go, Regan. Sure, but join us, won't you? I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. It doesn't matter, Baker. How do you do, Baker? Were you having fun listening in? Mr. Jones. Mr. Craig, this is my home. If I choose to have Baker stand by in case I should need protection against intruders like you... I just wanted to find out exactly what Mr. Baker's job was. You found out. And now... And now I leave. Uh, Mr. Jones. Yes? Has Baker got a license for that gun he's carrying? I'd left my car parked three-quarters of the way down the block from the bomb towers. I didn't hurry getting to it. Maybe I thought somebody might take advantage of my being out in the open like this. The street was clear of pedestrians and of traffic. If anybody was going to take a crack at removing Barry Craig from the case, this was the time I preferred. I was waiting for it. But nobody took advantage. I got into the car. Then I stuck the ignition key in the lock, turned it, and, uh, and got out of the car as fast as I could move it. Nothing on my car is supposed to tick when you turn the ignition key on. It was pretty obvious the engine would need an overhaul. I didn't stay around to admire the wreckage. I thought that anyone who had gone to all that trouble of depositing an explosive in my car and hooking it up with ignition deserved to think that I'd been blown up with it for a while at least. Besides, I had a phone call to make. Hello, Trav. Found any motors yet? No, but I found something else. What? A wrecked car. Whose wrecked car? Mine. We don't issue traffic tickets in homicide. This particular car is in your jurisdiction, though. Or would have been if I hadn't got out of it fast enough. Somebody arranged to have it wrecked? Somebody arranged to have it blow up with me in it. Where are you? And that's not important at the moment. Trav, you've got a handful of uniformed men hanging around the late Mr. Potter's residence? Sure. Take them away. No, I'm trying to find the killer. Trav and I had a small argument for a few minutes, and finally he gave up. I hung up. Then I tossed a metal coin to see who I would visit next. Turned out to be Mrs. Potter. Of course, I cheated. I wondered how surprised Gloria Potter would be to see me. Oh, Mr. Craig. He wasn't much surprised. May I come in? I suppose so. I don't have much of a right to decide what to do or what not to do right now. That sounds very bitter. It is. The cops have been getting in your hair? That's their job, I suppose. Well, they're not working at it anymore. What do you mean? No more cops around the house. You're joking. No. You've got a window. Take a look. I shall. You're right. Is that why you came? Because you knew the police had gone? Could be. Then you're another... Then I'm another what? Nothing. Well, if it is something, you'll tell me yourself in due time. I can make a guess. If the guess happens to be right, then I understand a lot of things I didn't before. I'm not really interested. You should be, for two reasons. One, the murder of your husband. Two, the attempted murder of me. Someone who tried to murder you? Uh-huh. Why? Maybe because I was crowding someone. Someone who'd already disposed of your husband. 
Did you bring that up? Sure. Your husband hired me. He was afraid he wasn't going to live long enough to divorce you. He didn't. Now, uh, you might try telling me the truth. About what? For example, what do you hear from Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones? Mr. Oswald Jones. The gentleman who bought you the platinum tooth trap for Jason Potter. You have to get into it, too, don't you? Not uh, too. It means someone else got in on the field. You also said that I must be another. Another what? You didn't answer that. You mind if I make a guess? I don't mind anything you do. Thanks. When I walked in here and told you the cops were gone, you thought I took advantage of their absence to come. You thought I was a blackmailer? <gasps> Thanks for telling me. It rounds out the picture. There must be someone else here in the house. No. Sure, there must be. After my car blew up, I had a phone call to make. That took time. I took a cab over. It took time before I found one. But whoever had arranged to have that car blow up wouldn't have hung around. He'd have come here. I don't know what you're... Someone else must have known that your husband was preparing to divorce you. I... I don't think that's been a very great secret. That would have given him a nice handle for blackmail. And then... Mr. Jones! Yeah, Mr. Jones. Complete with revolver. I'm afraid I've been eavesdropping. For how long? A matter of minutes only. I missed the beginning of the conversation, but uh, on the other hand, I don't think I missed anything important. Okay. You didn't miss anything important. What now? You've become rather a nuisance, Craig, both to Mrs. Potter and to myself. All right, I've become a nuisance. So what? What does one generally do with nuisances? One removes them. That's a bright idea. Was it also your bright idea to kill Potter? I hardly think you are in a position to ask questions. You're not in a position not to answer them. You see, Mr. Jones, an attempt was made on my life less than an hour ago and less than a hundred yards from your house. Oh, nonsense. No, a wrecked car. You must have noticed it, leaving your house there. There would have been a crowd about it. Oh, now that you mention it, yes, but... Uh... Naturally, you knew nothing about it. Well, naturally. Which is what you'd say whether you set that bomb or not. However, the point is that the police know about that attempt. Interesting. More than that. Anything happens to me, and you're the first man they look for. Uh, I should be found quite easily. But that hardly constitutes proof. No, but uh, how much proof would they need against a man with your record? I'm inclined to see your point. What do you want? Your silence for a few minutes. I was carrying on an interesting conversation with Mrs. Potter. She was about to tell me that someone was blackmailing her. She was also about to tell me why. I... Oh, what for you? You know why I was being blackmailed. Jason was going to divorce me. The police didn't seem to know about it. As long as they didn't know, I was safe. The instant they found out, they'd suspect me. So, I was in a position to be blackmailed. Uh, I'm afraid I must have missed something. Exactly who is this blackmailer? Oh, there's no hurry about that as yet. Jones, in the event that Potter had divorced his wife, where would you have been? In the most despondent frame of mind and in financially straitened circumstances. You, uh, you must know that, however. Sure, I know it. But it's nice to find out from the horse's mouth. Pardon the expression. Not at all. The next time I see a horse, I'll apologize to him, too. Okay, it's all set up. We know the background, the reason, all we need... Dodges. I helped him to his feet. All right, little man, fit that into your patch story. I had nothing to do with it, Rocky, so help me. You'll have to do better than that. Rock, listen. I didn't know Lily would go that far. It wasn't Lily. 
She may be in a hurry for a wedding, but she doesn't want to marry a corpse. Well, maybe she was only trying to scare you, Rock. Could be, but I don't like her idea of a wedding invitation. Come on, let's go. What are you going to do, Rocky? I'm going to pay my respects to the bride. It started with an Amazon looking for a husband and then a two-bit gambler with a sense of humor. Then in comes a fat man in a brown bowler who wants to pay for no wedding at all. <laughs> Rocky Jordan, bartered bridegroom. I shoved Timmy Rogers into a cab and hopped in behind him. I gave the cabbie the address, Club Fashad. Ten minutes later, we pulled up in front of a big streamlined white building. I paid the driver and we got out. The sign on the door said not open until 7 o'clock. Hmm. Sometimes you can't believe in signs. Coming down the corridor was a slim, touched character named Mike Sloan, manager and co-owner of the club for shot. A nasty smile cracked his face. Oh, I'd seen Sloan kicking around Cairo before, and I didn't like him. I like him even less now. Well, Rocky Jordan. Congratulations. Listen, Sloan, I didn't come here for... Oh, any... now, don't bother to explain, Jordan. I understand. You, uh, got our wedding invitation? Oh, sure. The bride wore a thirty-eight. Uh, Lily is sometimes a little impulsive, Jordan. After all, no one was hurt. But you'll get a bill for that mirror. We're ready for the wedding. You're wasting time. It's off, Sloan. Couldn't find the right size wedding cake. Rogers, what about that? I thought Jordan was all lined up. I... I did my best, I'm not Mike. backing out of it now, Jordan. Let's go. The bride's waiting. Pack her in ice. She'll keep. I'm out of it. Too easy, Jordan. Not a chance. <laughs> Just watch me. Rocky, listen. You're making a mistake. You sure are, Jordan. Oh, I see. It's going to be one of those uh, shotgun affairs, huh? Well, I wouldn't want to have to kill you. This way, Jordan. The gun in Mike Sloan's hand didn't move. It buried itself into the middle of my spine. Timmy Rogers wrung his hands and trailed along behind us. Sloan walked me down a thick carpeted corridor and we turned left into the main office of the club for shod. The blinds were drawn. Sloan slammed the door behind us. Coming toward me from the other side of the room was Lily Karoff, with gold earrings swinging like pendants. She was poured into a glaring red dress that revealed an awful lot of the new look. Well, Jordan, I see you couldn't pass up the money. Tell your boy Sloan to get the gun out of my back and I'll show you how fast I can pass it up. Mike, is everything prepared? Ready and waiting, Lily. In fact... Lily, my flower. Lily, what's happening? It was the balloon-shaped Egyptian in the brown bowler. His cane still draped gracefully over one arm. As he paddled toward us, his mouth fell open. Inside was a small fortune in gold fillings. What are they doing to you, my delicate Lily? Ahmed, please leave at once. I do not need your help. But, my Lily, I'm here to protect you. These men, they are making a fool of you. Do not believe Get me. Get out of here, Pasha. This is out of your range. Please, Lily, my blossom, I beg you to see reason. These men, they only mean to do you harm. I... The lights. Where are the lights? Help! pool of black ink. I dive for the spot where Sloan had stood with the gun. I felt hot air on my neck and turned. The carpet came up and made a fuzzy pillow for my cheek as everything folded into a nightmare of spinning rooms. And somewhere off in the distance, I, I heard the toll of wedding bells.
Tonight's story continues in just a moment. We're sure you listeners, many of whom have... Incidentally, if you ask me, Hobbs the best guide on the whole lake. Good, I remember that. Uh, only you're here on a case, remember? Oh, sure. But go on. Well, the fishing must have been pretty good, because they stayed on at the Overton Motel. Then the next morning, they went down to the landing, rented a little Arkansas traveler in a ten-horse Johnson, and went out fishing on their own. Rosk, I may try that very thing myself. But about the middle of the afternoon, a big east wind came up. You know what that means. I know that when a big easter hits one of those desert lakes, there's only one thing you do, get off it quick. Well, they didn't, Johnny. At least not quick enough. The following morning, when the blow had died down, Hob Fulton went out to look for him. And? He found the boat, all right. Beached on a point down near Goat Island. And Mr. Thomas's friend. What about Thomas? His friend says that Thomas went overboard when the squall hit him. Well, it's certainly possible. Yes, it is. Possible. The chomp on a lake like that can build up waves eight and ten feet high, enough to throw a man off any kind of a boat. Yes, I know. But you don't think that's the way it happened? I didn't say that, Johnny. It's just that... Well, okay, Rosk. What was his fishing pal's name? Charlie Wentworth. Does that mean anything to you? No. Well, I'm afraid I don't know very much about him either. Except that he, too, came here from Chicago. Arrived in town about two weeks ago. I take it that's where he knew Thomas, back in Chicago. Yeah, apparently. Well, what about him? What does this Charlie Wentworth do? Apparently nothing. But hang around the gambling joints. Oh, he does a little dealing and shilling for some of them now and then. There's talk he's been making illegal book on the races, though nobody's pinned it on him. So, in your book, he's an undesirable character. That's right. But is that reason to suspect he took Mr. Thomas out on that lake and murdered him? Now, Johnny, there's been a lot of worry around this town about some of the people who've come out here recently from Chicago. You know, ever since those investigations began back east. So what? Does that mean everybody who comes from there is a killer? No, of course not. But a man who doesn't really work for a living, you know, just spends all his time around the gambling tables, has no visible, regular means of support. Thomas was retired. Maybe Charlie Wentworth is, too. Oh, Johnny. Besides, who knows? Maybe Thomas will show up. Maybe he swam to shore and is plotting his way back through the desert. Oh, now, you know the odds against a city man surviving out there. Well, does anybody really look for him? Everybody. The police, the National Park boys, everybody. Not only in boats, on foot, but they even use planes and a helicopter. They found no trace of Well, that still doesn't prove anything. Tell me this. Are the police holding Charlie Wentworth? No, they're not. Which means they don't feel they have any reason to. But you still think I ought to investigate? Yes, I do. Roscoe? So do I. Act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. Hey, Dad. Did you check your car filters today? No, son, I didn't. Why? Because it might pay you $1,000. $1,000 for a car filter? That's right, folks. You may have a filter under the hood of your car worth $1,000 and not even know it. A Fram filter worth $1,000 silver dollars. A regular filter change is important to today's cars. So important that Fram Corporation is paying $60,000 to get you to check your filters now. Last year, in preparation for Fram's silver anniversary... 10,000 secretly numbered Fram filter cartridges were distributed all over the United States and installed in cars during regular servicing. These filters are worth from $1 to $1,000. You may have one in your car right now and not even know it. 
Check your oil filter and air filter now. If there's a specially numbered Fram filter in your car, you will win up to 1,000 silver dollars and your dealer will win the same amount. Get in on Fram's big silver treasure hunt. Check your car filters now. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Lake Mead Mystery Matter. Neither the police nor anybody else in Las Vegas seemed to think Thomas Thomas was murdered out on Lake Mead. But what Roscoe Trimmer told me made me suspicious, yeah, of Thomas's fishing pal, a man named Charlie Wentworth. Expense account item 5640. I telephoned to my old friend Ken Bugby, reporter on the Chicago Citizen News. Thomas? Thomas? Yeah, that's right, Ken. What can you tell me about him? Well, not everybody knew it, Johnny, but uh, he was a mouthpiece for the old Moretti mob. That was some years ago. Oh? When they started the big cleanup, well, either Thomas couldn't or just plain wouldn't get him off the hook. Let them all go to jail. Then he settled down, retired in his home out in Elmhurst. Well, he's certainly not there now, Ken. No, about a year ago, he suddenly sold his place, packed up, moved out west somewhere. Why? Do you know? Mm, change of climate, I guess. What about him, Johnny? Ever hear of Charlie Wentworth? <laughs> Are you kidding? He was one of Moretti's trigger men. Casual Charlie, they called him. You, uh, know where he is now? Oh, they sent him up to Joliet Prison along with the rest of the mob. Those boys will be in the clink the rest of their natural... Oh, wait a minute. Yeah? Casual Charlie and Snooty Wilson were released. Yeah. And, hey, that was just about the same time that Thomas moved away from here. If that means anything. Baby, I got a hunch it means everything. Oh? Like what, Johnny? Thanks a lot, Ken. Next stop was the public library, the old newspaper files. Getting some info on the almost forgotten Moretti mob was a lead pipe cinch, especially about the time when the gang was broken up. And apparently when lawyer Thomas saw the jig was up for his boys, having made his pile and to keep himself out of trouble, he left them flat. He'd let them get sent to the pen without raising a finger in their defense. So don't tell me that a mobster wouldn't want to get even with the guy who'd let him down. Sure, Charlie had killed Thomas. I was sure of it without even seeing him. But to prove it, without the corpus delicti, I spent item six thirty-two dollars even on some equipment at a sporting goods store. Then I drove north on Highway 91 to the quiet little town of Overton. There I learned that for once, Hob Fulton, the fishing guide, had a free day on his hands, but he was down at the lake some 12 miles east of the town. I met up at the dock, and within a few minutes, we were on board as Higgins run about and heading south. Something like a 550-mile shoreline, the biggest man-made body of water in the world, I believe. Just thinking about the record-breaking largemouth bass that have come out of that lake fairly made my mouth water. I carefully checked out the equipment I'd brought along. Do you spend a lot of good money renting that stuff from Shelby's Port and just down in Vegas, huh? Yep. Well, where's the spear? Bob, I don't think I'm going to need a spear. I don't think you're going to need any of that stuff. You ask me, Dollar, if you want to catch fish... Well, one of those rigs I brought along. Bob, I just want you to take me to the same spot you took Mr. Thomas and Charlie Wentworth. Too bad about that, Mr. Thomas. I got him a lot of nice bass, though. You know, fishing all the real deep holes. That's where they are this time of year. That's what I figured. Only they had sense enough to come back in that next day when the wind started to blow. Did they seem to get along all right, Hob? I told the police about that, Mr. Dollar, but I guess it didn't mean anything. You told them about what? Well, you ask me, Mr. Thomas wasn't any too happy fishing with Charlie Wentworth. But 
Charlie Kipps saying, let bygones be bygones. Let's enjoy the fishing. So when you when you found Charlie in the boat the next morning, was there tackle still in it? Have you ever seen this lake when there's a big blow from the east, Mr. Dar? I've seen Lake Mojave when it's been that way, but you haven't answered my question. No, sir. The tackle boxes got thrown overboard along with everything else. Even that big one of Charlie's. God, he had enough stuff in that thing to sink the Queen Mary. He did, huh? Like what, Hob? Well, I, I didn't poke around in it. But when I heist it on board. Oh, look. There's the glory hole. First place to stop for him. So if that's what you want, that's where we'll start. How deep is it? One of the richest men in Cairo. Yeah, but... And the most respected. He is a business broker of high reputation. He buys and sells business enterprises. Like uh, nightclubs? And why not? Jordan, you are beginning to waste my time. <clears throat> it is not likely that you kill Dilly and then struck yourself on the head. Therefore, I shall release you with the usual warning. Jordan, do oh, not... Oh, not again, Sam. I've heard that speech before. No, I'm not leaving Cairo. I like it here. I strolled out of Sam's office and onto the busy street. The neon signs were beginning to light up, which reminded me that the night crowd would be moving into the cafe tambourine. But there was one little matter that came before business. Murder. I was only a block away from the station when a small character stepped out of a darkened doorway. Well, 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 Rock, old kid, I've been looking all over for you. Why don't you try the other side of town? Listen, Rock, I didn't know it would turn out this way. I just read the extra about Lily. Look, Rock, you gotta believe me. I ran out of Lily's place the minute the lights went out. I didn't know about it till later. Sam Sabaya might like to hear that story. Look, Rock, I saw something in that room. You know who turned out those lights? Sloan did it. I saw him. It's not news, little man. But Mike Sloan has some answers, and that's the man I'm going to see. But, Rock, he wouldn't be hanging around the fachade. Uh, maybe we ought to go back to your place and uh, uh, get a drink first, huh? Hey, maybe you're right for once in your life. You give me an idea. Timmy Rogers and I headed back to the Cafe Tambourine. At every corner, Timmy looked four ways before crossing the street. It was exactly 7.30 when we walked in the front door. I worked my way through the crowded tables toward my office. Timmy Rogers hung on my coattail like a scared kid at a bargain counter. I opened the door. Just as the books were beginning to balance, I knew I had to throw them all out of the window. Sitting behind my desk was the man I was looking for, Mike Sloan. He was dead. Three holes neatly punctured the starched white shirt front of his tuxedo. Rocky, is he dead? Shut the door. Rock, what's that? It's a calling card. Sloan had it crumpled in his hand. Gee, Rock, let me see. Yeah, not so fast. Here. What? There's nothing on it. Just a dirty orange spot. Try turning it over, Timmy. Makes more sense that way. Rock, it says Ahmed Pasha. You guessed it. It's his calling card. Then, then that means Ahmed Pasha left it there? Oh, not likely. Maybe Sloan was trying to tell us something. You're right, Rocky. Sure, sure. Ahmed Pasha was in love with Lily and she wouldn't have him. So when he couldn't stop the wedding, he killed her. And Sloan saw him do it. It fits that way. Yeah, maybe it does, Rocky. What are you going to do now? Find Ahmed Pasha. Well, I... 
I don't know, Rocky. The Pasha didn't strike me as that kind of a guy. Maybe we're jumping to conclusions, Rocky, huh? Well, maybe not. Well, I don't know. That isn't much proof. Ahmed Pasha just doesn't look like the kind of person who would commit murder. Are you going to call Sabaya? Yeah, later. There's one other call I'm going to make first. Where's that, Rock? The card says office number 17, Kadru Street. Well, pretty late for calling at Pasha's office, isn't it, Rock? Oh, just a hunch, that's all. Uh, coming with me? Yeah, well, okay, Rocky, I guess so. We ducked out the alley door. Down the street, we hailed a taxi and gave him the Pasha's address. As we weaved through the night traffic, wheels in my head ticked along with a cab meter. Everything added up like a traveling salesman's expense account. It fit now. I wouldn't be throwing any more books out of the window. There was a light in the office front as the cab pulled over to the curb. I'm looking for Ahmed Pasha. Is he here? It, it's rather late. No, no, he's not in. Do you mind if we step inside? Well, very well. You are also from the police? Rocky, maybe we better no, get out. No, not exactly, sweetheart. Ahmed Pasha left a calling card at my place. I'm returning the call. Then you are not the police? No. When were the, uh, the police here? A while ago. I don't remember. Please. Ahmed Pasha is not here. I cannot help you. I have not seen him all afternoon. Oh, just calm down. We'll make this short. Please don't ask me any more questions. It is time to close the office. I must go home. One thing more. Any idea where we could find him? Perhaps at his hotel. That is all I know. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the partner. No, no. The Hotel Shepherd, room 614. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure, that's it. Uh, uh, sorry to bother you. I watched the girl bolt the door behind us and pull the curtains. So Sam Sabaya had paid his respects to the Pasha after all. Didn't look like his luck was any better than mine. Timmy Rogers had something in his mind. It's this way, Rock. The Pasha shows up in your cafe and I get shot at. Then he comes to the wedding and Lily gets killed. You know, Rock, I don't think I'm in a hurry to meet that Pasha again. Uh, see what you mean. Look, Rock, why not let Sabaya handle it? If you go up there to Ahmed Pasha's hotel, you don't know what might happen. Jimmy, I think you got something there. Maybe it would be a nice idea to have Sabaya along. Sure thing, Rock. That's playing it smart. Oh, come on, we're wasting time. And not we, Rocky. If Sabaya is checking on Ahmed Pasha, I'm next. I don't want any part of that police station. The last time I dropped in to see Sabaya, I stayed 30 days. <laughs> All right, see you around, Timmy. Yeah, sure, Rock. See you around. I found the nearest phone booth and dialed police headquarters. Sabaya was gone for the night. My next stop was the Cafe Tambourine. Nothing had turned up. Mike Sloan was still sitting behind the locked door to my office, and I left him there. That made it complete. There was only one item left on my list. Hotel Shepherd, room 614. The lobby of the Shepherd was teeming with a tourist trade. I strolled over to the main desk and waited for a pith-helmeted Englishman to collect his mail. Then I moved in. Rocky! Rocky Jordan, I say, it's good to see you again. Where you been? Oh, usual places, Archie. Ah, what's on your mind, Rocky? Archie, you got a small favor. Oh, Rocky, the last favor you asked of me almost caused me my position here. Oh, sorry to hear it. This one's gonna be easy. Oh, yes? What is it? I want the key to room 614. Really? 
Oh, no. Oh, now, Rocky. Well, there you go again. Oh, this is important, Archie. Oh, I, I can't do it, Rocky. Sorry, I'd, I'd really be discharged doing a trick like that. Besides, that, that, that's Akmud Pasha's room. Don't you know that? Well, he's a permanent guest Look, here. Look, Archie, I said it was important. Oh, well, I, I, I'd like to, Rocky, but you know... Thanks, Archie. I knew you'd help me out. Archie's a real friend. He made like he didn't even know I'd slipped him the tent spot when he handed me the key. Being in Shepherd's was like old home week. When the little numbers on the door said 614, I stopped. This was the end of the line. I put the key in the lock. I gave the doorknob a quick turn, kicked the door open, and dived for the floor inside. When the shooting stopped, I reached back with my foot and kicked the door closed. In the thick darkness, I started crawling for the spot the shots had come from. I figured he wouldn't move, but I was wrong. I met him halfway. He didn't have time to shoot again. The lights came on, and in the doorway stood Ahmed Pasha, all cane and white gloves, the brown bowler resting neatly on his round head. What? What is the meaning of this? Uh, I don't have time for the shooting. Maybe you'd like to meet the man who murdered Lily Karoff. Ah, take a look. Why? Why? That's right. When he left, because that's what he's done. It's not all his fault. The trouble he had in Manila and Sandakan. He told me the men thought he was afraid of him. He wanted to show him he wasn't. He never knew people like that. He didn't know how to get along with them. Say that it doesn't make a difference how I feel about him. We'll get to him as quickly as we can. I'll figure out some way to stop Brown if he makes a try. Maybe that'll be too late. But Brown's going to be stopped, Mr. Dollar, I promise. If you don't do it, I will. Go get some sleep. We break camp at dawn. Lying in my hammock, looking up at the solid ceiling of foliage that hid the sky, and with the unaccustomed language of the jungle bothering my ears, I try to get a fair perspective of the situation. But I couldn't. I couldn't answer any of the questions. I dropped off to sleep realizing that I was more than anxious to meet the amazing Abel Tackett. There was no sign of real danger until the third day, only the painful monotony of slashing at vines with heavy knives, fighting insects, stumbling over half-concealed ankle-high branches, of sweat-filled boots and soggy clothing, and a hundred other arguments against Borneo. Mind the tent. It looks like a fern here. Got it. It carries a brutal sting. This is the one, Inez. Watch it. I see it. I'm... Hold up. Come on. What is it? I wondered about that. What did he say? Head hunting. I found a body on the trail. Coming along? Yeah. Better stay here, Inez. Uh... I wondered about that. It's been too quiet. We haven't spotted a dyak since we started. This section is usually swarming with them. Poor beggar. How does that look to you, Dollar? You still think the natives aren't stirred up? No. No, it looks like they're stirred up for him. Poor beggar. Uh, he can thank your man Tackett for what he got. Yeah. We don't have to look at him. It's the work of a Punan. You can tell by the clean wound. They're Mandows are the sharpest ones in the island. 
They know we're coming, Inez. Yeah. How do you know that? I know them. They hide the bodies. They don't leave them on trails unless they've got a reef to. Like telling us to stop, huh? <laughs> That's right. Look at those boys of mine. Waiting to see what I'll do. Waiting the chance to slip in, into the brush and head for home. Can you hold them? I can hold them. I'll shoot the first one that tries to leave, and they know it. Come on, but the boys, the house! We'll have to make a camp here. They're great people for Romans. I told them to start looking for good ones. Yeah, and I know them. It'll take the rest of the day and half the night to find enough to move them towards Long Y again. How do the omens look to you? Huh? I can't say yet. The headhunters know we're coming, but they don't know why. If they knew we were coming after Tackett, <laughs> each in our own fashion, so to speak, I, I don't think there'd be any trouble from them. But they don't know, and there's no way to tell them. You're blaming Tackett for this? I am. You stupid fool! Do you really believe in this idiotic stand you've taken against him? Or is it a convenient answer for some mistake you made with the natives? I can't be quiet. Inez, stop it. Don't you believe it? You're lying. Make her shut up, Dollar. I'll shut up after you've answered Stop me. it. We've had enough. We don't need hysteria. Now be quiet, will you? You'll answer me. Will you? They've been headhunters from the beginning. So tell me why Tackett is to blame for what you found on the trail. Tell me why. Well, if you'll shut up long enough to hear it. You've been in Borneo too long. I know what the tropics do to men like you. I know the people. For ten years I've learned to know them. I understand about headhunting. To the dark ahead of the strongest magic in the world. Strong enough to bring rain, make things grow. Strong enough to protect the whole kampong from track or anything else. Like enemies. You should have been born in one of their filthy huts. You think like one. Forget it, Brown. Forget it. She'll find out I'm right. Headhunting was almost stopped until Tackett came here. Then it started again. Because they hate him. Because they're afraid of him. That's why they're collecting heads again, and that's the truth. Blame everything on Abel Tackett. If you can't find another reason for something, blame it on Abel Tackett. Oh, I've had enough. Brown! Brown! What the devil's the matter with you? You heard her. I've been in Borneo too long. Tension, hysteria, everything out of proportion. The distorted perspective of the jungle where emotions become sensitive as skin. Inez wanted to love Tackett. George wanted to kill Tackett. I wanted nothing but proof of his existence. Yet all of us were of one mind and one thought. All our efforts were directed toward Tackett. And Borneo was keeping us from him. We started to move again in the next morning. That day and the next were easier, physically at least. The country cleared some and we started to climb out of the humid jungle into a section where there seemed to be more air. The following day we stopped before dark and Brown pulled me into the privacy of a shadow. We'll be there tomorrow. Oh, that close. What then, Brown? <laughs> I was going to ask you the same thing. You know, I've learned to like you, Dollar. Thanks, but I still can't let you kill him. <laughs> I'm not so sure you can stop me. How would you get back to the coast without me? I'm asking myself the same thing. I'd be stupid to take the gamble, but I'd have no choice. So that's the way it is. Yeah, that's the way it is. All right. I can smell rain. It'll be here before morning. first sight of the village of Long Wai was from a low hill, 
It was veiled by the slanting sheets of rain that floated across. A welter of huts, two larger buildings for gatherings, but not a sign of life. Abel Tackett's hut was barely visible a mile or so down the shallow valley. We stuck down toward it. What do those drums mean, Brown? Do you know? Yes. I know. Mama Palu. <laughs> a happy little ceremony when the headhunters come home. It could turn sour if they knew we were here, but I, I think we can move across the clearing. Let's go. What are you going to do, Dollar? Aren't you even going to warn him? All right, if you won't, Will. Abel! Abel, be careful! Come on, take her! Keep quiet! Come on, Dollar. I'm going inside. Wait a minute, Brown. We'll go in together. I came here for nothing. He's already dead. Is that Tackett? Must be. They stopped being afraid of him. I wonder how long it'll take to undo the trouble he's caused here. Abel Tackett. And he's dead. There was the body of a man lying on the floor, dirty duck short and jacket, but no papers. I couldn't positively identify him as Abel Tackett. The natives who had killed him were headhunters. Expense account items six and seven, same as two and three, transportation back to New York. Item eight, cab fare to the address of Mrs. Abel Tackett. She seemed neither sad nor happy to see me or to hear what I had to say. He died, Mrs. Tackett, of fever. He was in the interior. There was no time to get him to a doctor. You saw him? No, I didn't. Then you can't be sure. There's no proof. But, Mrs. Tackett, absolute proof has a, has a different meaning in Borneo. He wanted to lose himself, didn't he? He could have changed names. Could even have traded his identity with someone else. Couldn't he? He's dead, Mrs. Tackett. Look, I want you to go to probate court. Even without absolute proof, without, with what I brought back, you can have him declared legally dead. You're his sole heir. There are no other living relatives. His estate, his fortune, they're yours. They're yours to live with. That's why he left them to you. You can't go on struggling with a false hope. Please, Mrs. Tackett, don't stop living just because he did. You've got to believe me. Abel Tackett is dead. He's not dead. He's alive. He's living somewhere. And as long as he's alive, I'm alive. There was nothing to do. I left her in the old house with her records and her dark walls and her old letters. I left a young woman dying there. And there was nothing I could do. I walked out into the clean, fresh air and went home. Expense account total, $4,075.80. And for what? The only constructive thing I can make out of it is that it made me an expert on pure, unadulterated, 
frustration. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, stars Edmund O'Brien in the title role and is written by Gil Dowd and David Ellis with music composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Edmund O'Brien can currently be seen starring in the Harry M. Popkin United Artists Program, D.O.A. Featured in our cast were Maria Palmer, Tudor Owen, Raul Chavez, Ben Wright, Chris Kraft, and Dan O'Herlihy. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is produced and directed by Jaime Del Valle. Join us next week at this time when, from Hollywood, Edmund O'Brien returns in another transcribed adventure of... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. This is Lieutenant Van Tyle of the Cape Town Police, Mr. Dollar. Oh, yeah, Lieutenant. I've been trying to get you. Anything new on the Forbes murder? I'm afraid not. How about the diamond? It's still missing. Oh, so far we're batting zero. Any suspects? Oh, yes, indeed. Who is it? Not it, Mr. Dollar. They. What do you mean, Lieutenant? How many guests would you say were at Andrew Forbes' party last evening? Oh, uh, 60. Then we have 60 suspects. Oh, great. <laughs> Tonight, and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location Cape Town, South Africa to the Home Office Tri-Eastern Indemnity Associates. Assignment, the star of Cape Town Matter. Expense account continued.